Open uh, tonight, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I can't prove this by statistics or any research that has been done. I think it would make a good study, <laughs> good research. But I'm going to make a claim that the number one sin in the American church, okay, and if not number one, at least 1.5 or 2, number two, number one, big sin in the American church. What do you say it is? Just in your, in your mind, answer that question. Lots of things come to mind. In the, in the American church now, not the nation, not the secular world around us, not your workplace, but the American evangelical Bible-believing church. I would suggest that it is prayerlessness. And I've seen a lot of articles and, and books that have come to light recently, and I think that's obviously planned. A, a couple of books have come out from Crossway and others um, on the idea of prayer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from one of those, those guys tonight. So along with that have come some articles. And in, in one article, uh, the, the author said this, I remember hearing a story about an African church leader who was brought to America to tour our churches. An African church leader brought to America to tour our churches. So he's, he's going, maybe preaching, teaching from place to place, and he's, he's getting to experience worship services in various churches. And at the end of his travels, at the end of his tour, he was asked for his thoughts. And I don't know the extent of his thoughts, but only one sentence is recorded here. He said, he replied, I'm surprised by how little prayer I witnessed. It's an interesting fact to think that you would come to a church, a, a Bible-believing church, evangelical church, that would actually uh, confess that there is a God who hears and answers prayer. That, that we, we actually serve a God who listens to our prayers who inhabits our prayers, who inhabits our praises. And we're not talking about a, a mainline uh, liberal church or some, uh, or some other cult that would maybe uh, disagree with the om omnipotence of God. Maybe God hears our prayers, but he can't do anything about anything. Or maybe God doesn't hear our prayers. Or maybe God is not omnipresent so that he doesn't hear everyone's prayers. We don't believe any of that. We believe God is omnipresent, omnipotent. He hears all, he knows all, and he can do all. So why would an African church leader come to America and tour our churches and come away saying, I'm surprised by the lack of prayer? I think the word lack is a little too passive. When we say we, we lack prayer, it kind of makes us the victim, doesn't it? And we are. We make ourselves the victim because we're missing out on a blessing God has intended for his church. We lack prayer. That's, a, that's very passive. Let's make it a little more active and maybe a little more convictional and say the neglect of prayer. It's the absolute neglect, oversight of prayer. So that brings us to the question, okay, if this is true and America's churches lack prayer, we as Christians lack prayer, why? Perhaps there's a misunderstanding of prayer. Maybe some of us come from different religious backgrounds or various denominational backgrounds where we misunderstand prayer and prayer simply gets boiled down to a formula that I say these words and this thing. I think of our Roman Catholic friends who would say prayers uh, with a, a rosary and there's a, there's a very specific formula in which they say their prayers and by saying these specific words with these specific acts, that's supposed to accrue some sort of merit with God or from the priest or, or bring absolution for sins or something. Maybe that's what we bring into it. Or maybe we bring in a, a prosperity mindset or a, maybe a, a more prosperity-centered Pentecostal mindset or charismatic mindset where prayer is just simply demanding things of God and we think purely of physical needs, financial, uh, sickness, physical needs. And we think merely in terms of God getting rid of sickness or giving us 
riches or giving us what we ask for, what we want. Maybe that's what we bring into it. Maybe we bring in a whole separate theological system. Maybe even a more reformed understanding of God in prayer. God is sovereign over all things. That God has decreed everything that will come to pass. And that in his eternal foreordination, God has already set in, in place his plan for people and nations and sickness and hurricanes. And that might even lead us to an error in saying, so if all that's true and it's all planned out and it's all scripted out by God, why pray? What difference does it make? Maybe it's just our modern busyness that just uh, creates thousands of distractions for us every day. That gives us a worldly mindset that takes our mind off of the things of God and puts them on our schedule or our work or our school or this distraction or that distraction or this event or this program. Maybe it just boils down to a lack of faith that we don't actually believe no matter what our theology, no matter what our thoughts about prayer. Maybe we just don't actually think prayer does anything. Obviously, I think all of these can be the problems. The average evangelical Bible-believing church in the United States, evangelical Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, in its regular morning worship service, spends less than five minutes in prayer. I think we'd be shocked by how many mainline, liberal, unbelieving, gospel-rejecting churches we could go to that pray more than most evangelicals in their worship services, that read more scripture than most evangelicals in their worship services, and they don't even believe it. Unfortunately, I've been in this context before where prayer is simply a time of transition And so I sit around with the worship team or the music team, obviously not here because we don't have a band, but it's just a way for the band to get off and on the stage. Oh, I know what we'll do there. Man, these are real conversations I've had, mind you. It's not made up. Oh, let's just uh, put a prayer there. That's great, put a prayer. Because a prayer, everybody's got their eyes closed, and the movement of things on the stage and bringing in the props and the sets and getting the band off and the light changes and all the stuff we got to do to make the show happen, prayer is a good way to make that happen. So when people open their eyes, it's like, ah, it's just magic. The band's gone, the set's there, and the preacher's ready to preach. Let's do a prayer. That'll, that'll do it. We need something else at the end. What can we, oh, a prayer. And do you think those prayers are meaningful? Maybe the heart is in it. Maybe the intention is good. The motive is good. But it ends up being unplanned. Not that all prayers have to be planned, but it's unthought through. It's generic. Pretty powerless. And it just ends up being transition. Need I say anything about personal, private prayer? So tonight, I just want to look at four aspects of prayer, four questions to ask about prayer. They're very simple, diagnostic questions. What, why, how, and when? What, why, how, and when? So let's start with the what. What is prayer? Now, if you don't have um, a good study Bible, you know, Pastor John's always making plugs for them. So here's another plug for them, a good study Bible. It, you know, these, these notes and the commentary aren't scripture. Nobody's claiming that. But they are good helps, you know, as you're reading scripture that gives you commentary. Uh, this one happens to be the Reformation Study Bible, and it features, along with the commentary, there are little theological articles kind of sprinkled throughout. This one happens to be on the subject of prayer. And so I'm just going to read their definition of prayer, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about it a little bit. We are able to talk to God. He speaks verbally to us in his word and non-verbally through his obvious providence, the things that happen around us. We commune with him through prayer. Charles Hodge declared that prayer is the converse of the soul with God. In and through prayer, we express our reverence and adoration for God. 
We bear our souls in contrite confession before him. We pour out the thanksgiving of grateful hearts and we offer our petitions and supplications to him. So let's just say it simply. The Sunday school answer, what is prayer? Which it's, it's there. It says con, con, converse with God, but it's simply talking to God. Conversation with God. Conversing with God as with a friend. That's what prayer is. Uh, that same little theological article out, uh, lays out some, uh, some um, contingencies of prayer, the types of prayer that we just read. Number one could be uh, reverence and adoration of God. That could be a topic of prayer. You know, so often we think about prayer, we kind of think in one lane, and we'll get to that in a minute. We think of one lane. But think about reverence and adoration of God, that you use prayer to talk to God, to worship God, that you praise God in prayer, that you thank him in prayer. Turn to uh, first, it's, keep, keep, your, keep your marker there in Ephesians chapter 6, and let's go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. Notice the context here that um, David is preparing for his son Solomon to take the throne, to build the temple, and they have taken a collection from the people for the building of the temple. And after the collection, the people have been generous and kind of with the temple in the foreground, we know it's going to be built as this wonderful place for God's glory and his presence to dwell. In 1 Chronicles 29 verse 10, David Bless the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. If you just want a little kickstart in the morning to help your prayers focus on the reverence and adoration of God, just put a little marker there and circle that whole thing. And again, don't make it some kind of superstitious recitation that you do every morning, but really focus on that. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. Both riches and honor come from you. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Use prayer to give reverence and adoration to God. Next, confession. Another one that was mentioned in the list there, confession. Just look briefly at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, of course, after David was caught uh, in his sin with Bathsheba, not caught in the sin itself, but after the fact, Nathan confronted him in his sin. David confessed his sin. God, it brought punishment for his sin. And then David sought repentance in this prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but you can you know, put, that, put, a, put a marker there. You can use prayer as a means of conversing with God to confess sin. Not, not just that you can, but you should. We should, as a body of Christ, use prayer corporately to confess our sins to God. How about thanksgiving? Psalm 136. Turn over there. This might sound like praise and adoration, but I would make a distinction between reverence and adoration and praise and worship and thanksgiving. And what's that, what's that distinction? I think reverence, adoration, worship, those, those types of prayers that we read from First Chronicles are praising God for who he is in his nature, his attributes, the things that, that are who God is. We praise him for those things. Not that we're reminding him of who he is. He, he knows perfectly well who and what he is. But we worship him with our spirits, confessing who he is to him and agreeing with it. 
I think thanksgiving, obviously, is praising God, not just for who he is, but for what he has done. And in Psalm 136, we see uh, a prescription for this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Obvious that ramification there is he's good to us. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Verse 4, who alone does great things? Verse 5, who by understanding made the heavens? Verse 6, who spread out the earth above the waters? Verse 7, who made great lights? Verse 8, to rule over the day, stars to rule the night, but just keep going down. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Okay, now we're getting personal, not just this whole creation thing, but, but the author as an Israelite remembering what God has done for them. Verse 11, brought Israel out. Verse 12, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, divided the Red Sea, made us pass through the waters, overthrew Pharaoh, led his people out, who struck down great kings, killed mighty kings. And on and on and on we could go with, the, with this specific list. But what's your list? I mean, you take what, what this author is praising God for and you read that and you say, yes, God has done great things in creation. God did great things for the Israelites. God has done great things through Jesus for us. And then personally, what has God done for you? And the list should be that long, if not even longer. Next, prayers of petition and supplication. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Very familiar text. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think so often we think of prayer merely in these terms. Bringing requests to God. In fact, that's, that's pretty much how we kind of across the board tend to think about prayer. If, if I were to say, go have prayer in your Sunday school classes, go have prayer in this uh, corporate setting or in this corporate setting, the first thing we want to do is say, and there's nothing wrong with this, obviously, the first thing we want to do is take prayer requests. And we have a prescription to do that here in the scriptures. Let your requests be made known to God. Bring everything before him. Do not worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But bring all your requests to God, even in a corporate setting. Let your requests be made known to one another. So I'm not saying that, that just, just because that's all we tend to think about means that we shouldn't think about it. That's a very valid, real, scripture-described form of prayer, to bring requests to God, to make all our wants and wishes known, as the song said. Nothing wrong with that. Although as we've gone through these other kinds of prayer, we see that it shouldn't just be that. Now, those are the four kind of headings that that, that particular article brings out. Um, I would like to add one or two, maybe together. Lament and complaint. And I don't mean complaining in a sinful, grumbling, uh, selfish way to God. But you can, you can read a lot of the Psalms. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations <laughs> that is given completely with a few exceptions in the book, completely from a prophet complaining to God. Jeremiah complaining about his people being in exile, complaining about his holy city being destroyed. And we read the pain and the anguish behind his voice, and God put that in the scriptures for a reason. He puts Psalms like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Those are there for us to pray to God in times of distress, in times of pain. Prayer does not just offer God requests and petitions, but it covers praise, it covers confession, it covers petition, 
It covers lament and pain. And we see in all of this, you can read the Psalms, read Lamentations, read the things that God has described for us, prescribed for us to read back to him and to sing to him. And we see that God has designed prayer to convey the full range of human emotion and human experience to him. There's not just one emotion of prayer. There's a whole spectrum. I was listening to one of my favorite speakers named Sinclair Ferguson's talk on the issue of worship and corporate worship in the church. And he said that one of his friends who had just experienced the loss of his wife, the loss of his spouse, sat in the worship service and afterwards the, the, the pastor said, well, what did you think? Did you enjoy it? And this person confessed to Sinclair, all I could do was ask him, why must our worship be so unremittingly joyful? And that takes many of us by surprise, doesn't it? Well, of course worship is supposed to be joyful. Of course worship is supposed to be happy. Is it always? Is worship never lament? Is, is, is prayer never pouring out a broken heart to God? Is it always just uh, fake smiles and masks and hypocrisy? Is it always just that? Where we feel like our, our lives are breaking apart, we're losing everything, things are crumbling out from underneath us, and we come to the one place where we feel like that should be able to be expressed in worship with God's people. And the first thing we do, we walk through the doors. How you doing? Good. We're fine. We're great. I think of the commercial about the antidepressant medication and the people going around with the happy faces, the, the masks. And that's what sometimes that's what we, we try to force that on people. And not just in a corporate worship setting, but in the Christian life, we expect that of people. I saw an article this week, and, and Jessica saw it too, about, um, well, the article I saw was called, Don't You Dare Rejoice with Those Who Are Weeping. And the point was, you know, in Romans it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And this author was saying, But don't you dare rejoice with those who are weeping. In other words, someone comes to you as a believer and says, I'm really struggling with this and my heart is broken over this or I've just lost this in my life or this is crumbling down around me. Well, all things work together for the good. I noticed you're a little down lately. Why don't you just be happy because Jesus died for you? You think God really expects that of us all the time? I don't think so. Psalm 13 wouldn't be there. Lamentations wouldn't be there. How would we express what we feel in our hearts when we think about a massive storm taking human life and destroying property that people have spent their lives for and may not have insurance for and have lost everything? How do we express that to God with joy? You can't, and he doesn't expect us to. Prayer covers the wide range, the fullest possible range of human emotion and experience and therefore is the most personal communion that we can have with God. So next, let's move on to why. Why pray? And this is a little more complex than what is prayer, obviously. Uh, first and foremost, we pray because we're commanded to. Turn back to Ephesians um, chapter 6. I had you put your marker before. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You don't have to turn to the rest of these. In fact, don't turn to the rest of these. Just write them down if you're taking notes. And, and if you're not, you can listen to it later and look, look them up in your personal reading. Uh, 1 John five sixteen. pray for brothers who are in sin. 1 Chronicles 16, look to the Lord and seek his face. James 5.13, if anyone is in trouble, let him pray. It's so simple, isn't it? If anyone is in trouble, 
Let him pray. Matthew 5, 44, pray for your persecutors. Matthew 6, we have the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray like this. Romans 12, 12, Paul says, be faithful in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, we read this, in all things pray. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. 1 Timothy 2, 8, all men everywhere should pray, lifting up holy hands. Secondly, we should pray because Jesus prayed. If it wasn't just a a direct command of scripture to pray, we at least pray because our prime example, Jesus prayed. Luke 3.21, at his baptism, it said Jesus prayed. Luke 6, when he called the 12 disciples, he prayed. And Matthew 11, after facing rejection in Nazareth and other regions, he prayed. In Luke 9, before asking his disciples who he was, he prayed. At Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, him, Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain to pray. John 11, at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus prays. Matthew 26, at the Last Supper, Jesus prays. Luke 22, Matthew 26, in Gethsemane, Jesus prays. John 17, Jesus prays. Luke 23 and Mark 15, on the cross, Jesus prays. Throughout his entire ministry, wrap your minds around this if you can. The divine son of God who was with God and who was God and who was God in the flesh in his earthly ministry prayed and needed to pray. He needed the power and the presence of his father and the working of the Holy Spirit for his ministry. And if Jesus needs it, and if Jesus obeyed, we obviously should follow his example. So now practically, okay, we have the the obvious precedent, uh, the command to pray in the Bible, and then we have Jesus' example. Practically, why do we pray? Here's some questions, and this might be the meat that some of us were waiting on. I don't know. First question, does prayer change things? Second question, does prayer change God's mind? Third question, does prayer impact God's will? Does prayer change things? Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer change God's will? If we just across the board, without any explanation, just say, well, yes, Prayer changes things. Yes, prayer changes God's mind. There's scriptural examples, and I have to tell you that there are, where it seems like that's what happened. But let's think for a second. Can God be coerced into doing something he had otherwise not planned to do? I mean, obviously not. Can God be talked out of doing something that he had foreordained to do? No. Can God be manipulated or forced into changing his mind or changing his will or changing his plans? I mean, if we just take those statements at face value, prayer changes things. Prayer changes God's mind, and we just willy-nilly just throw that out there, and that's how we think of prayer? Then when someone is sick and we're praying for them, well, let's just get a million people around the world to pray for them, and that's that's all you need. Obviously, no one really thinks that because at the base of all those prayers is always this inclusion, at least subconsciously, that we want God's will to be done. So, before we get too excited then, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. James 1, 17, God neither changes. There's no shadow of turning or changing with him. So this is all great and good in theology and, and uh, two thumbs up and God's sovereignty and providence and we can't coerce him, we can't change him. He's sovereign, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. So that leaves us with another big question, doesn't it? Why pray then? Why even bother? to pray if we can't change God's mind if we can't coerce him into doing something he had not planned to do or change his mind to do something he had not planned to do or change his mind about not doing something he had already planned to do if we can't do those things then why do we even talk to him why bother 
Why do we ask people to pray for us? Oh, please pray for this. Why do we share our prayer needs? Why do we share our prayer requests? And, and here's the thing. If prayer does nothing, we shouldn't pray. But that's like saying that evangelism does nothing. That if we, we hold to the fact that God is sovereign and God is in all these wonderful doctrines that we've talked about, foreordination and predestination, God is just going to save who he's going to save. Why bother to tell people about Jesus? Well, that's obviously misguided. If God is sovereign over everything, we could really boil it down and ask, why do anything at all? Why even get out of bed? <laughs> we have to be careful. You see, we talk about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and all these wonderful doctrines. If we just boil it down to, you know, stoicism, fatalism, case sera, sera. What will be, will be. Is that sovereignty? No. Is that trust in God's providence? No. Is that biblical? No. Prayer does things. Here's how it does things. Write this down, <laughs> big stars. Yes, God has ordained the end. Yes, God has ordained the end or the ends, but he also ordains the means. So if we just boil foreordination and God's decrees and God's sovereignty and God's providence down to a point out there somewhere, and God's going to do what God's going to do, and my prayers do nothing and they don't matter, and so I'm not going to pray because God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. Que sera, what will be, will be, and there's nothing I can do or say to change that or to make anything different. Why pray? We don't understand prayer and we don't understand sovereignty. Because God does not just ordain the end down there somewhere, but he ordains every single, every single thing that leads to that end. And he ordains every single thing that leads to all ends. You see, it's not just predestination of something down there somewhere. It's every step along the road. And here's the good news about prayer. God uses our prayers to accomplish his sovereign will. Just as God has determined what will be from the foundation of the world, he sovereignly uses our prayers to accomplish that purpose. So our prayers really do do something. God chooses to use our prayers to accomplish his eternal purposes. So if you refuse to pray because of some supposed belief in God's sovereignty, or let's say you fail to pray because of some supposed belief in God's sovereignty, you misunderstand sovereignty and you misunderstand prayer. If you reject God's sovereignty, though, here's the other end of the question. Here's the other end of the equation. If you don't believe God ordains the end, if we don't believe God predestines the end, if we don't believe that, there's a bigger question for you. Why pray at all? If God is powerless to change the future, if God is powerless to do something in the future, why would you even bother to pray? So there's pitfalls on either side because we can say, okay, sirrah, sirrah, what will be, will be. I'm not gonna pray at all because God's gonna do what God's gonna do. Or we can say that it all depends on me and God really has no power in this except what I give him with my prayers and with my requests. And if I don't pray, this won't happen. And if I do pray, this will happen. Right here in the good biblical middle of it all is where we should rest with two really unharmonized truths. God is sovereign and God will do what God is going to do. But he has also commanded us to pray and in the mystery of God's sovereign will, he chooses to use our prayers to accomplish what he has chosen to bring about. Next, let's talk about how to pray. Beyond just what to pray, how to pray. And this, this is also from this, this article in the study Bible, that just three things. Pray with sincerity. 
That's the setting for the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Pray with sincerity. Jesus is telling them, don't be like the, the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites who, who pray in the public squares with their many words. And here's the key, to be seen. In New York on a missions trip, I was confronted by a Jehovah's Witness who took me to that. And, and, and the point of this mission trip was we were standing in the, the, the street in Times Square and we had a big sign that said prayer station. And as people came by, we just asked if we could pray with them. And a Jehovah's Witness came by, pointed us to Matthew 6 and said, see, it says right here, don't pray in public. Now, I don't know why they wanted to make a big deal about that, but I kindly pointed out to be seen. Don't pray to be seen. Don't, be, don't pray to be heard for your many words. Jesus says, pray with sincerity. Pray like this. And then he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, which is in its setting, completely revolutionary to the way the Pharisees were used to praying. Number two, pray with reverence. We can come with confidence. We do come with boldness. Uh, but we should remember Exodus chapter three, as Moses turned away from the burning bush and God said, Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. We should think of Hebrews chapter 12 when we are reminded that God is a consuming fire and that we should worship him with reverence. Three, we should worship God with humility. Pray, pray to God with humility. First John five fourteen. we pray according to his will. His will. In Psalm 102, verse 17, God hears the prayer of the destitute. The destitute. I think about Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit. We lower ourselves, we humble ourselves in prayer. That's the prayer that God hears. Practically, how? So these are, you know, the, the, the postures of prayer, sincerity, reverence, humility. But practically, I don't know how to pray. Well, simply remember the definition. It's conver uh, conversation with God. It's talking to God. You can use some helps. You know, there's a book out here by Dr. Whitney called Praying the Bible. And one of his, you know, things about spiritual disciplines is learning to pray through the Bible. That as you read text or as you read the Psalms, you learn to pray those back to God. Not as a stopping point, but as a starting point. I use some prayer helps like the Valley of Vision. It's a Puritan prayer book that's just very beautifully worded prayers, good King James English, beautiful. And, and covers, like we said, the wide range of human experience and emotion. And you shouldn't just read those prayers, you know, superstitiously, da 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 da, -da and be done, but use them as a starting point. And I, I guarantee you, if you begin to use a help like that, you, it will be a starting point. You won't be able to stop. Something like the Book of Common Prayer wonderful Anglican uh, tool for since the 1500s that was written by reformers for the Ref Ref Reformational Church in England. So doctrine is packed in there. But there's also beautiful prayers for the sick, prayers for the dying, prayers for those in need. And again, don't read it superstitiously like I just pray this thing and it's done. No, use it as a starting point. But those are good helps if you don't know how to pray. Lastly, let's talk about when to pray. When to pray. First of all, pray together. Corporate prayer. Pray in corporate worship services. When we pray in corporate worship services together, we are being taught to pray. It's not a mindless exercise whereby we just listen to someone pray. We listen to the pastor pray. We listen to men pray. Now, the, the point of that is to learn to pray. That as we listen to others and join our hearts with them in prayer, we hear a model of how to pray. Corporate prayer, like corporate worship, communicates that the Christian life is not a solo life. Corporate prayer says, it confesses that we're in this together. Corporate prayer exemplifies that the Christian life is not one that is lived in isolation. It says, we're in this together, God loves us, he has saved us, and remember, Whatever experience we are in, whatever emotion fills our heart, we are in this together. You are not alone in your grief. You are not alone in your sadness. You are not alone in your brokenness. You're not alone in your joy. 
You're not alone in your thanksgiving, but we are in this together. And that's the importance of rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should vary our prayers in corporate worship. We should use, as we said earlier, prayers of praise. They're, they're wonderful times to join in prayer with God's people and give him praise for who he is. There's wonderful times to pray with God's people in, in times of confession. Corporately, we have sinned against you this week. Obviously, times of corporate petitions and requests. What about corporate laments? Corporate complaints? Even when it's uncomfortable for you. See, we're okay with a couple of these, and I think that's why we more often than not land on just petitions and requests. That's comfortable. That's easy. Because it takes the attention off of me, and I can ask you what we want to pray for. And more often than not, our requests are not us. It's out there somewhere. Pray for so-and-so. He's doing this, which we should pray for that. Pray for my mom. She's going through this. We, sh we should pray for that. And even if it is about you, it's kind of about you in a surrounding sense. I have a job interview. I have this thing happening. Pray for my leg. It hurts. I don't know. Pray for my dog or cat or whatever we should pray for. It gets weird sometimes. But when's the last time you asked for a request and someone said, pray, pray for Pray for my attitude. Because I'm angry right now. Pray for my heart because I'm dealing with some jealousy right now. You get those in Sunday school often. And if we did, we were often like, ooh. And then you don't know what to say, do you? Uh, we'll pray for that. And then comes the awkward part of actually having to pray for it in the class with everybody. Pray for Tori's jealousy issues. She's envious of something and there's judgment in there and there's condemnation in there. And we've just lost our way in how to do this together. Corporate prayer, confession, petitions, laments, sharing things with one another, even when it's not comfortable. In light of that, pray with one another. You just said that, didn't you? Nope, I said corporate prayer, and now step two, pray with one another. Pray with each other, one-on-one, -on -one, in small groups. All of these are commanded. And we're also to use those other kinds of prayers with each other. Confess your sins one to another. If someone is in trouble, let him pray. If someone is sick, let him come to the elders of the church. Let them anoint him with oil and pray for him that the prayers of the righteous person avail much. We should set aside specific services per, for prayer, which we do. We do have prayer meetings on Wednesday. And we have set aside a specific time now for prayer because in many churches, you can go down the road and see a sign that says prayer meeting Wednesday at seven and it's just a Bible study. Bible studies are great. We should have Bible studies, right? That's a good thing that churches should do together. But when you say we're going to meet for the purpose of prayer, meet for the purpose of prayer, petitioning the Lord for one another, interceding for one another. Lastly, individually and personally, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. I mean, I don't... I, don't stop praying. If prayer is the inner conversation with God, of your, of your soul with God, you understand now that you can pray without ceasing. It's a personal, individual command. More than just a command, it's a personal, individual invitation from the God of the universe to you. And he says, you can come before me and you can bring your hurts, you can bring your sins, you can bring your praise, you can bring your thanksgiving. I mean, that should blow our minds that that invitation is open to us. 
You know, there's something really, <laughs> this is going to sound obvious, there's something really, um, Jesus has got something when he says pray for your enemies. He's not just throwing that out there like, um, you know, it just sounds nice. You got some serious stuff with someone, you start praying for them, not praying against them, <laughs> not invoking the impeccatory psalms on their lives, you know, but praying for them and blessing them. That will change your heart pretty quickly, won't it? See, at the end of the day, we're talking about biblical fellowship and koinonia and, and being together and being with one another as the body of Christ and support and unity and love and fellowship and all the things that koinonia involves. At the end of the day, it comes down to loving each other, doesn't it? Isn't that what Jesus said? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? that you love one another. He could have said a million things there. By this, all men will know my, you're my disciples that you fill in the blank. Any number of good things, good things. But he says, by this, you will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. You wanna create koinonia? Pray for each other. This article taken from uh, crossway.org, it's not by me or from me. I just wanna read it to you in closing. I have pastored two churches over the past decade and I've been involved with networks, organizations, seminaries, collectives, and other groups of Christians. I've sat with visionary leaders who have churches filled with great systems. I've also sat with leaders who aren't visionary and who have churches with poor systems. I've done ministry with gifted individuals, people with average gifts, people with very little gifting or proficiency at all. I've partnered with attractional churches, missional churches, mega churches, medium churches, and meager churches. Throughout my experience, I've learned that these distinctions aren't the most important. They're peripheral and secondary. If I had to draw a line to create two categories of churches, it wouldn't follow these distinctions. I've learned to see churches as those that pray and those that don't. A church's commitment to prayer is one of the greatest determiners of its effectiveness in ministry. Prayer is oxygen for the Christian, it sustains us. So it follows that prayer must be a source of life for any community of Christians. It is to the church what it is to individuals, life. Yet many of our gatherings could be likened to people coming together merely to hold their collective breath. I was talking about earlier, coming together to hold your collective breath rather than to breathe together. This would explain why people seem to have so little energy for actually living out the Christian life. You're not breathing. <laughs> but breathing together is what, is, our, is what our churches need. Prayer humbles us like nothing else. When we pray, we're reminded that prayer is not like the other disciplines in the world that require impressive aptitude and increased exercises to bring about great results. If someone hopes to get rewarded for or compensated for playing an instrument, for example, they must first achieve a level of expertise through years of practice. Great results spring from grueling, long-term regimen. There's no initial payoff for novices of any kind. Prayer is not like these things because great results don't come as a direct result of grueling regimen and expertise. Great results come from our gracious ruler and great rewarder and reward of his people who cry out to him. Many accomplishments in prayer come from apparent novices. Abraham met God and God offered to hear his prayer to spare the town where his nephew resided. Moses met God at a burning bush and not long after he successfully interceded for Israel. In the 40 days following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the disciples began to pray differently. They stopped praying for self-preservation and for more gospel faithfulness and boldness. God rewards the prayers of novices, which encourages consistent prayer in the lives of his people. If prayer is like breathing, then isn't it, about, it isn't about our expertise, it's about our experiencing the power of the one to whom we pray. It's about the great expectations that grow in us when we have a genuine experience of the God who hears and answers. We don't need experts, 
And that's a strong encouragement to churches filled with many members and even pastors who feel like novices. I've experienced the beauty of weak prayers that meet a willing savior. Our church has too. It's a lot like taking the first breath after having the wind knocked out of you. The experience makes you eager to take another and another and another. So are you a prayerless person? Are we a prayerless people? Only you can answer that question for yourself. When's the last time you took your praises before God, your confessions, your petitions, your requests? Old gospel hymn that I sing to myself pretty often. How long has it been since you talked with the Lord? That's what prayer is. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the gift of prayer. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us as we leave this place tonight to join our hearts together in prayer. to dismiss us now uh, in a spirit of prayer and if you need to go you may go I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna throw something at you if you need to get your kids from the nursery that's great they love that but I want to offer you if you would like an extended time of prayer tonight with yourself if, if you need to get with someone beside you next to you and, and pray and maybe it's like we just said, maybe it's just like taking a breath of fresh air after having the wind knocked out of you. And that can be very refreshing for you. What do you, what do you need to pray about tonight? Maybe you didn't know it was okay to express complaints to God or a lament. Maybe you didn't know it was okay to be brokenhearted in the house of God. So I'm, I'm just gonna sit here on the front pew and when we kind of feel like things are dispersing, that's great. When you wanna leave, you can just leave. But I wanna offer you an extended time of prayer by yourselves, with each other. You just do as the Lord leads you to do and we'll uh, end this time in a time of prayer.